Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Tonight, we're talking about California wines, specifically those made in the Sacramento region. They're low-key, but innovative, and have an interesting history, just like Sacramento itself. In our first Grapes and Groundbreakers event, we're holding a new type of wine tasting, mixing plenty of great wine with good conversation by a few California groundbreakers who turned grapes into liquid bliss. Our wine aficionado panel tonight includes Andrew Wilson, a Sacramento sommelier who's worked at top restaurants like Mulvaney's and The Waterboy. Chris Walsh, a former New York City sommelier who makes his wines in his hometown of Amador City under the End of Nowhere label. And Craig Harmeyer, owner of Harmeyer Wine Cellars, a historic place for Sacramento winemaking where we're holding this event. Join us as we talk with Andrew, Chris, and Craig about California wine, how it's grown, how it's made, how it's marketed to us for better or worse, and also why Sacramento wines are hidden gems that deserve more attention. Hi everyone, welcome to California Groundbreakers. We are a civic engagement organization based here in Sacramento, and we always take a look at what's groundbreaking innovative in California. And tonight we're doing kind of an innovative thing for us. We're doing a Grapes and Groundbreakers Wine Social, where we're taking a look at what is innovative and groundbreaking with wine in California today. Uh, we are hosting it in a, a pretty historic venue. It's very under the radar and, and uh, in West Sacramento. And we're going to be talking about wine here on the podcast. For those of you on the podcast, you will not be part of the wine tasting, uh, but at least there's more wine for us. And this will hopefully inspire you to come to one of our next wine socials. But the idea is just to get a sense of um, maybe a primer on wine in California, how it's unique, um, a different uh, comparison contrast to wine in other regions of uh, the U.S. and other parts of the world. And also we have two winemakers who are doing pretty innovative things with wine here in California. So we're going to be talking with them. Um, I want to say first to uh, people who helped make this event uh, uh, happen. Of course, uh, I wanted to first say thanks to our host, Craig Harmeyer. We are at Harmeyer Wine Cellars. And so thank you, Craig, and also to his family, Kelly and Alex, for helping us put this event together. Also to our other panelists, Chris Walsh from the End of Nowhere and Andrew Wilson, many thanks. Uh, to our poor uh, Eric Schwartzgruber, thank you very much. Also to our audio uh, podcast engineers extraordinaire, Caleb Clark and Nate Graham, thank you very much. And last but not least to our audience who showed up here, uh, parked somewhere uh, on the whatever streets we have around the area and, and made it, thank you very much. So uh, I don't introduce the panelists, I always have them introduce themselves, but I always like to ask a personal question. Um, obviously we're going to be talking about wine, but I thought, what's a good question besides what's your favorite wine and what wine are you really into today? So besides asking you your name and what organization you belong to, I thought the question for today would be, what's a favorite movie you love that is about wine, or at least has a lot of wine poured in it that is not sideways because I feel like everyone says oh sideways is so great so I figure since you're wine pros there might be other 
movies about wine that you could uh, let us in on. So I'm going to start with the gentleman on my left. Hello. My name is Craig Harmeyer. Um, uh, let's see. Wine movie other than Sideways. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I'm at kind of a loss. Maybe, Book, actually maybe Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> Uh, right. I don't know how much wine was poured in that movie. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but maybe it's a, uh, informative for uh, our discussion this evening. Grapes of Wrath, it could be, actually. We'll, we'll, we'll find out. All right, next up. All right, I'm Chris Walsh um, from the end of nowhere, and my favorite wine movie, I'll go with an actual wine movie. Um, I'm going to have to go with Bottle Shock, just because you get to hear Dennis Farina say shit brown wine. <laughs> so that's all. Bottle shock. Okay. Next up. Hi, I'm Andrew Wilson. Uh, just worked in town for a while. I'm a water boy right now. I have a couple uh, wine movies. I think Psalm. Uh, you can go on Netflix, Psalm, and then Psalm, the two, and now three is out, but I haven't seen that one. Um, but if you want one that's a little darker there's a movie called sour grapes that came out in 2016 that's actually about one of the biggest wine ripoff scandals in history a guy was counterfeiting wine i think in 2006 he sold 35 million dollars of wine at auction most of it was counterfeit um and it's a lot of stuff about that and but there's guy there's people that got wine from this guy they are invested so fully in the idea that he didn't rip them off that it really plays into this whole kind of wine culture uh, in a way, that's really, really good. So I would, yeah, Sour Grapes is the movie I would recommend. All right, thank you for the wine recommendations. And I should men mention that Andrew and I have been partnering up. We're we're testing out this uh, this idea about you know let's have a different kind of wine tasting, an irreverent one that uh, involves some conversation along with the wine tasting, uh, more so than you get at a at a typical uh, winery. So we're going to see how this works. So thank you. Yeah, I guess thank you, Andrew, for for uh, doing this, and of course, thanks to you, Chris and Craig, for, I know you're probably like, let's see how this works, so. But um, for the th each of you, I wanted to start with you, Craig, and then move down the line. Um, your first experience, or at least your first memorable experience drinking wine, and because you three are, are involved in wine so deeply, I wanted to see what made it so memorable for you, um, wine, and, and uh, how that made you move into a career focused on wine. The Craig, yes, uh, Well, I certainly didn't set out, uh, you know, I didn't seek a career in wine. I just discovered in my late 30s that maybe that was a, a good fit, that maybe I should have done that all along. I grew up in my parents' restaurants uh, working for them, I worked my way up from the dish pit to working in the kitchen. Uh, they had a tasting room in the late 70s in old Sacramento, pretty much the first tasting room in Sacramento, all when, you know, this, the attention, the light being shown on Napa uh, Valley. So I have very early memories of my parents um, going with my parents' wine tasting in Napa, bringing back wines, and, and I remember tasting those wines. Um, I don't know if they knew that I was tasting the wines, but... <laughs> They also had a very, they liked to entertain and they had a very deep liquor cabinet and a, and a small wine um, cellar. And so then during high school, of course, we raided that and put a pretty good dent in it. And, um, but the whole time, you know, 
I was just really paying attention and enjoying what I was drinking. And then in college, I just wanted to, I love fermented foods as well and anything fermented. I didn't really realize it at the time. So I started brewing beer in college because we lived in an apartment and I just didn't have room to make wine. Uh, plus I always, but I always kind of wanted to make wine, uh, but I always thought that that was something reserved for people who were born into the business, that you don't get to make wine unless you're raised up in it. And then it was actually at this place when I was in graduate school helping out these folks here, Charlie Myers at, at Harbor Winery, where I got my first taste of actual commercial winemaking and my it, thought just struck me. It's like, well, I, I can do this. And we should mention, actually, the the history of this place where we're holding uh, the grapes, to gra- grapes and Groundbreakers. What's the history of this place that we should know about? Um, well, Charlie, Charles Myers um, was home winemaking in the 60s in Curtis Park. He excavated his, uh, he, he built a basement, basically, so that he could, he could make wine and keep his wines down there. He taught English at... Uh, Sacramento City College, and his very close friend and co-worker um, was, is actually Daryl Cordy's uh, partner, and so of course being close to Daryl Cordy, uh, Daryl pushed, kind of pushed him into, I think, making wine commercially, so he bought this place for a song probably in the late 60s, early 70s, and is, made wine here ever since and on always on a very very small scale and of course the wine the california wine industry was much smaller 50 years ago 40 years ago so the backyard we're planning on fixing up but it was there's a bocce court back there and and he planted all these uh you know almond trees and fig trees and citrus and we'd like to bring it back to its it's you know the grandeur of, of of the day, but they used to have big parties back there, and so when people from all over the world for decades have been coming to Sacramento to meet with Daryl Cordian, and um, so when he would bring influential people to town, many times he would either encourage them to come here or he would bring them here, and they would taste Charlie's wines. Um, some of these people are names that you might recognize, like Joe Heights used to hang out here and come to some of the dinners. Um, rumor has it that Andre Chelichev was here drink, you know, smoking cigarettes and, and tasting wine from barrel. So it's, it's an untalked about and an unknown uh, piece of Sacramento winemaking history uh, in, this, in this building. And, and, and to have us occupy it now and to be carrying on is, uh, you know, we're quite ardent about that. Great. Well, yes, I mean, it's very uh, under the radar, but definitely I knew there would be some history there, so thank you. All right, Chris, what about you? How did you, what was the first memorable experience you had with wine that made you think, ah, hmm? Uh, So I, too, fell into wine, um, not as a a career choice I thought I was going to do. I grew up in Amador County and didn't really drink wine. I had had some some Amador Zins, some of the bigger Zins, I think, um, Sobon and whatnot. Um, but really wasn't in love with wine. And I found myself living in New York uh, in 2007 to start with and uh, was working as an architectural lighting designer and that worked out pretty well until about 2009 when everybody stopped building stuff. Um, (laughs) So I needed a job and I wound up uh, becoming a runner busser at a wine bar on the Upper West Side. 
And the first time that I really remember sitting with a glass of wine and just wondering, how do you do that? Um, one of the uh, Psalms, my buddy Morgan, um, who now has a master Psalm, uh, asked me what I drank. And I said, stupidly, reds, right? Because that's what guys drink, reds. Um, <laughs> and he said, no, you need to try something else. So he poured me, I believe the vintage was 2000, um, Lopez de Heredia, uh, Gravonia, it's a Spanish white wine that they release basically 10 years after they make it. So this was probably early 2010 um, that I was drinking this and uh, it blew my mind just how complex it could be. Um, and it got me thinking about, you know, I certainly wasn't going back to architectural lighting design because they still weren't building anything. Um, what I was going to do next. And so I have, I grew up on property up in Amador County and I thought, well, maybe, maybe I can stick in some vines on like my parents, you know, six acres. Um, so in 2011, I planted some vines, told my parents not to, uh, don't do anything to them, just leave them. Well, the deer ate them. <laughs> And uh, some of them lived, and so we still have some of them. Uh, that became what we call the Lucy Vineyard. That was our early test vineyard um, on the property. So that's kind of, I just, it was, I needed something to do, and it, it was there for me. So that's how I did it. And then I worked my way up until um, I'm also a certified sommelier. Um, I was working in New York. And then 2013, 2014, I decided I wanted to, try my hand at making it so I got an internship at Donkey and Goat and came back to California and I've been here since. Andrew what about you? Memorable experience. Uh, I was working when I was 19 uh, 18 in a uh, in a grocery store shocking shel stocking shelves and then a buddy of mine this was when I was living in Santa Rosa a buddy of mine got a job in Sonoma uh, at a cafe and it sounded like he was making way more money so I got a job there and then I started waiting tables there and then I got a, another random job uh, in Santa Rosa at this place that was called the Orchard Inn. Uh, it was in a building that burned down uh, in the fires last year actually. Um, but I got to work there with a couple people that really took wine seriously but it was really someone fucking with me that got, into, got me into wine actually because I went and worked for a chef and a guy, uh, an owner there uh, Frank and Mark. But one day I was working for them in this restaurant and uh, Frank told me the last night that he was going to bring in some Bordeaux that was really fancy that I would really going to enjoy. And I was like 22. I had no idea what that meant. Um, and so he, I got to work and he's like, oh, here. And he poured me, he showed me this fancy bottle. He poured this wine out of this bottle and it was very, very light in color, like almost like now what I would call like a very light Pinot. Um, and I tasted it and I told him it was delicious. And then he told me that he had actually drank all the Bordeaux and put cooking wine into that bottle. And he had, and he had actually poured me cooking wine. And he and the other guy had had a bet whether I would know uh, if they had done that or not. And then Frank bet on me being ignorant and not knowing and he actually won. And that really made me angry. And, and then after that, I decided I was not gonna be made a fool of like that again. And I started learning and tasting um, and that was kind of, that was the, I, I started caring about it then and I liked it before and I'd had some experiences, but nothing that's really memorable. But that, uh, yeah, not being made a fool of, 
um, when I worked in restaurants was really my motivating factor for learning about wine. And um, yeah, I, I like drinking with people. I, I passed the intro level of the Court of Master Sommeliers like 10 years ago. Um, but then they changed some of the rules, and so I lost um, interest in that. But yeah, i just just been working in Sacramento. Um, first job in Sacramento that was good was Mulvaney's, I, and that, that also was uh, foundational for me in terms of wine because that was the first time I worked in a restaurant where people took it as seriously um, as some restaurants do. Like I hadn't worked any place where wine was taken that seriously before. That was in 2006. Um, so I had a lot of people there that taught me a lot. So that, th those are probably the two. So the, the three of you are fairly local to the area. So getting into the, um, the thing that we're talking about t tonight, specifically about the Sacramento wines and the terroir, uh, this is a word that we mentioned, uh, in some marketing thing. I wanted to ask you your take about growing grapes in this particular part of the state. Uh, what's unique about this region? What's good? What's bad about the conditions here, the terroir? Um, and maybe I should start with you, Craig, because I know the terroir is something that you really emphasize when it comes to your wines. Um, and then, Chris, I'd like to ask you, too, because I know Aminor, I like to say it's part of the Sacramento area, but there may be some differences. But, uh, yeah, Sacramento and growing wine, growing grapes here. Uh it, that's a huge that's a huge subject. California has so many microclimates and so many different soils, and there's so many different ideas about how to do things. I would just say first off that I came up with this uh, term Sacramento terroir several years ago, just primarily as a way to hopefully get people thinking about uh, wines of place. By and large, I think most of us go to the grocery store, buy what we like, taste it, enjoy it, and then buy that bottle again. And to my mind, what's most fascinating about wine is how different wines can be, not just by producer or area or climate, vintage as well. It's such a three-dimensional beverage. And pairing it with food is uh, one of, I think, life's biggest joys. And so, and there's not a whole lot of wine culture in Sacramento. Um, and so I just wanted to hopefully get people thinking about, thinking about Sacramento as a wine region. Not just, there are these things nearby, like Napa, of course, is world-famous. Sonoma is the red-headed stepchild of Napa, maybe. Uh, and then the foothills, you know, by and large, a lot of people don't take that seriously. It's our local favorite because, you know, it kind of is more rustic and speaks to us, and it's not snooty. Um, so people latch onto that, and, and Lodi as well. But it seems like everything's dancing around Sacramento. And so when I first discovered that the wine grape, uh, the wine making grape was the largest crop in Sacramento County, that's kind of when the light bulb went on for me. As Sacramentans, I'm sure we all know that Sacramento used to be called more so years ago, Sacramento. But it really, the tomato has m much less to do with Sacramento than the grape does. And so I just wanted to get people thinking about um, these things that we make here. And when I say here, I mean just Sacramento proper. It's just this whole area. 
Um, anyway, so it's just really more of a marketing term and a way to get people to think about what's in their glass a little bit more. So there's nothing really about like a, we have the Delta Breeze or soil conditions or anything there that makes uh, this area unique well, for that. I mean, we we do, um, but it's so so manifold and myriad that it would take me years to cover all the all the bases you know i i mean when this is like like when my uh wine making and drinking and when we get together this is we just talk ad nauseum about this about this kind of about this kind of thing i mean i will say that there's like for the delta is 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 unique just because it's it's not taken seriously because the soils are very alluvial and very rich and so it's great for growing row crops people don't really take wine seriously in or take Clarksburg necessarily so seriously because of that. Vines like do better when they struggle. Uh, and the soils are so rich in Clarksburg that um, I think a lot of people kind of scoff at that. And so for me to be able to make these wines that people find compelling that we're selling all over in, in, in markets that don't normally even consider putting a Clarksburg wine on their, on their wine list, uh, you know, it's it's gratifying to. Sh <laughs> Sorry, uh, I was just asking Craig to mention the markets where he's selling a lot of his wine right now. Oh yeah, so I mean, uh, we we do have more and more support in Sacramento, which is great to see because this is where we live and we want our you know our friends and family to drink these wines. But primarily, our wines are sold in New York and Southern California and the Bay Area. Um. Um, uh, yeah, so these wines are being taken seriously, and it's not a terribly serious terroirs, really, or they're not perceived as such, but there's a great cooling and moist air that comes in uh, off, the, uh, off the bay that greatly influences not just Clarksburg, but Lodi as well. You can look at some of the weather if you care to pay attention, you can see that many times further up valley in, in Napa and Sonoma, it doesn't cool off that much in the evening, whereas Lodi might get down to 55 degrees on a regular basis because of these cooling breezes. So although this is a warm region, you know, Lodi is much cooler um, and Clarksburg as well than, than a lot of people know or think. Yeah, just we have so many microclimates here in California in terms of temperature. I figured it would uh, at least affect the wine in some way. Chris, with Amador, um, I wanted to ask, hold it. Yes, what would you like to Sorry, say? Sorry, I'd like to just jump in. Uh, terroir, we were talking about terroir. I just want to throw down a very basic definition real quick. Just I didn't know if people... Terroir is a French term. Uh, it means everything about a place where wine is grown. It means literally every single thing. It's a sense of place. So it's the climate, it's human intervention, it's weather. It's literally everything that makes the wine what it is, uh, having to do with the place where it is grown. And when you talk about terroir, you're talking about the wine being built in the vineyard and having all of the things that make the wine what it is happen in the vineyard. Um, and it's, it's, it's just a very simple concept. It's a sense of place. It's a sense of influence. And one of the reasons, I mean, we've all talked about this a lot, but one of the things that people that really, I'm not even going to say sommeliers or anything. I'm just going to say people that like to talk about wine. One of the interesting things talking about wine is where you can taste their terroir and the place in the glass. 
where you can taste if there's an ocean breeze coming in and you get some salinity or you know the skin has been thickened by that and that gives it a little more structure or if it's hot in the summer and or hot in the night in the day and then cold at night right you can get great acidity or or even a freeway next to a vineyard can literally influence you can get some weird stuff happening there. So, so terroir, when we're talking about terroir, we're talking about a sense of place and you're talking about everything that happens in that geographical area, um, that makes the wine what it is. Um, and I just wanted to, I just wanted to interject with that. Sorry. Okay. No, that's a good definition. Um, so yes, with, with your terroir up in Amador County, Chris, I wanted to ask you about growing wines up there. I know it snowed, um, uh, earlier this year. So that kind of, does some things to the wines, but also I wanted to ask particularly about your wines because I was reading up on uh, the ones you make. Uh, they're not filtered, right? They're they're natural wines. I don't know if organic is a term, but it seems like you make them in a way that uh, is a little different or unique. So you don't have to go into the weeds about this, but I was wondering about for you, what's unique about growing wines in Amador County, that elevation, and then what's unique about the wines that you make in terms of the winemaking you know, in a nutshell, um, the winemaking process that you use. Uh, certainly. Um, so I think the amazing thing about this area, especially the foothills, um, you know, the lower parts of Amador are very similar um, to Sacramento Valley. Um, even in certain places, you'll have, you know, the alluvial soils. Uh, Shenandoah Valley, outside Plymouth, it's mostly kind of clay, red earth. Um, but it's all jumbled up. I'm at the top of Amador County. My vineyard's up at 3,300 feet. So I have the highest vineyard in the county, um, which is kind of crazy, because um, we do get snow um, in May sometimes. Um, it looks like the vines came through it okay this year. You never know. Um, but it's a, it's a special place, this kind of greater Sacramento area, Sierra Foothills, because you do have so many different little spots. I mean, that's why I love making wine from Clarksburg because it's totally different from Amador County, the influence. Um, and we do have those big diurnal shifts at night um, because, you know, on one side of Amador County, you have the McCallamy River. The other side, you have the Consumnes. And kind of, I'm in the little skinny part of Amador County where they come together. Um, and so it's, it's a really, you know, all those things really do impact the wine. Um, we're very dry, uh, which is great um, for vineyard growing just because, you know, it lessens powdery mildew and, and lots of other pests and things like that that you have to worry about in Sonoma and Napa that aren't as big of a consideration. Um, then going into uh, my winemaking, um, I do, uh, I guess, follow the natural uh, winemaking style. Um, which is, I don't want to say it's a fad, because <laughs> um, it's the old way. It's not the. It's not. It's not new. It's old. Um, and what it is is that you. I'm just kind of issuing a lot of, the things that people do that I think make a wine a very made wine and a very stable and reliable product. And uh, to me, they sort of strip the soul, and you do lose that sense of place um, if you filter your wines, fine your wines, add a bunch of sulfur, use a commercial yeast, um, water back, put alcohol in, take alcohol out. Um, there's literally a million things that you can, 
you can do to a wine and you don't have to tell anybody that you do it because um, they're all legal. Um, and some of them are, you know, a mechanical process like removing alcohol and some of them are just, you know, additives. Um, and so I try and do wines that are minimal sulfur, um, native yeast fermentations. I don't fine, I don't filter, I don't acidify. Um, so I kind of just want to, you know, make the wine in the vineyard, pick it at the right time and you get what you get. Great. Okay. So speaking about wine tasting, uh, for those who are listening to the podcast, I think now's the time to be listening while you have a glass of wine before you've tasted it. Cause I want to ask the three of you about tasting wine, how you taste wine, any glass of wine, what you do, what should we do with our nose, our eyes, our mouth, our tongue, if you can describe it in a verbal way. Uh, so Andrew, why don't you start? How, how do you taste wine? How should we taste wine? Uh, the first thing to remember about tasting wine is that you need, you should, I'm not going to say you should think about it. One possible way to think about it is thinking about it as art. And maybe a metaphor is you're in a museum, you see a painting, you like it, you don't like it. Someone asks you about it, you can talk about it, say things that you don't have to be educated about it to know what you like and do not like. And you should think about it like a museum as well in terms of if you're in a museum and someone asks you what you think about a painting and you tell them, are they going to shut you down? Probably not. Like there's probably going to be no pushback at all about what you actually think or say or believe about the art that you're witnessing. And it's the same about wine. There are douchebags that will like hammer you and try to make you feel bad about what you think and know about wine. And generally you should just ignore those people because if anyone is serious about wine is talking to you, everyone experiences wine differently. Everyone likes different things. And if you're drinking wine with people that are judging you, uh, you are drinking wine with the wrong people. So I would just say that first off. Um, and then second, I'll just run through a quick um, breakdown of how some professionals taste wine. There's a lot of different ways to taste it. Uh, but the four things that you generally look at, you look, you look at the wine, you look at the color, um, and you just look at it. And then there's the nose is the second part. You smell it. And you, that's what the swirling is. You'll see wine people and it's like this compulsive swirling thing. Like they just, just like they have OCD and they're just constantly like swirling wine all the time. Chris is going to demonstrate. Well, it, 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 there's a reason for that. Actually, it doesn't need to be done quite as much as that often, but, uh, I'm talking about myself. I was not talking about him. I just will sit there and spin wine forever. Um, but what it does is it does bring some things up into the air that you can then get access to if you smell. Uh, but sight is the first one. Nose is the second. Taste is the third. Uh, then you taste the wine. Uh, and then the fourth is you come to some kind of decision about it for yourself. And so I think I think that's basically it. I mean, that's how professionals taste. It's called the grid for the Court of Master Sommeliers. Like, it's a four-minute thing at some levels, but that puts a lot of pressure um, on the whole experience of drinking wine, uh, which is great for education and thinking about it, but in terms of building community or relaxing, not, not the best. So, Winemakers, do you have a way that you taste wine that you like to share with others? Chris? Um, I do think it's kind of funny because I worked as a psalm first and then made wine second. So I taste wine different now than I was trained because I was trained in that same site. You know, a thin red wine will tell you about the grape skin density, the ripeness of the nose will tell you about when they picked it. Um, viscosity, I think, is one of the lesser ones. Uh, everyone makes a big deal about legs and it's like, eh. It just tells you how thick the wine is. It might be 
it's got sugar in it or it's got alcohol, but it's, it could be a lot of things. Um, but you know, telling about the ripeness can tell you about the place. Um, so there is a lot to do that, but now it's more to me about, um, I don't really, as a winemaker, I don't personally care about color. Um, it tells me a little bit about the grape, but it can be misleading. Um, and so I just look f more for, you know, what did they do to it? Um, am I smelling a lot of French oak? You know, is it, is it super tannic? Is it, you know, cause that tells me a little bit more about how it's made than personally than, than what it is. Craig. Cool. Um, yeah, I would uh, second that on color. I, as a winemaker, I really don't give a damn about color. That's more maybe people technically analyzing. Like if something's, if you're blinding, if you're tasting something blind, you know, color might be important to help you figure out what and where and answer some questions. But as a winemaker, as long as it smells and tastes delicious, I don't really give a damn about the color. Um, but I would, I would just say that um, in my years talking to people about wine and selling wine, it's um, still, I maybe not surprising, but you know, people will, I'll see people who have been drinking wine for decades. They're maybe 50, 60, 70 years old, and they say things like, I don't know anything about wine. And I'm just like, start now, you know? And I think one of the best things that you can do is just take a few moments even if you're by yourself consuming some wine, just take a few moments to just ask yourself some questions about how it tastes and feels and smells. And if you're with somebody else, take a few moments just to, you know, you'll say strawberry and they'll say, no way, it's rhubarb, you know, and, but that's, but that's going to be informative. You're going to be like, oh yeah, maybe, maybe rhubarb. Yeah, maybe that's right. And also just the act of verbalizing it uh, helps you learn and remember things. Um, so this is why, like, when professionals get together and get, you know, he, you know, in arguments and say all this thing about wine and the vintage and the, it's not bullshit. You know, it's, it's, they care about it and they're training themselves. And you don't have to, as just somebody who likes, enjoys wine, you don't have to go to that level. But it, at least if you could just, like, say it, you know, when you're drinking it and pairing it with your food or having it with your meal, you know, um, that's gonna, that's just gonna feed your, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna feed your curiosity and, and um, your enjoyment of, of the wine. Chris? Yeah, I, was, I wanted to jump in on that, that uh, vocabulary training, I don't think you really train your palate, you train your brain. Um, if you're smelling wine and it's like, what is that I'm smelling? Um, and then somebody says, yeah, rhubarb. And you're like, no, I don't think it's rhubarb, but it's, you know, it, your rhubarb might not be their rhubarb. So what, what it is to you is most important and just kind of keying that in. My story about that was, I was in a tasting panel once and we were blind tasting and somebody called out graphite. And I was like, have you been chewing on a pencil like graphite? Because I grew up in an auto shop. So when I think of graphite, I think of like lube for axles, which sort of smells like cherries. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not getting that. And I, I kid you not, like three months later, somebody poured me a wine. I was smelling it. And I was like, this smells, oh, damn it, graphite. <laughs> so 
just train your brain. Uh, I wanted to ask, has anyone seen, uh, if you raise your hands, have you seen the movie that's out on Netflix, uh, came out last week or so, uh, Wine Country with Amy Poehler and Tina Fey? Okay, about like a, a quarter or so. I, I just thought too, and we were talking about this a little bit. There was not a lot about wine, but there was some obviously. And I think the thing that got me uh, was when they went to a very high-end winery in, in Napa, at the top of the hill, and the and the man asked, uh, "What do you taste? Anything? You know, anything is, anything's, uh, nothing's off limits." And one woman said, "Uh, canned peaches." And the guy's like, "Ah, uh, no." So, to me, I think one thing that comes up a lot when I talk with people about wine is, you know, what you say when you talk about wine, and how some people could sound so. <laughs> knowledgeable and some people the other people like they sound pretentious and I remember for me one comment someone said I can't remember where I was he's like oh I can taste the dew on the grape on the leaves yeah they're laughing that these guys are laughing but this man said it very seriously and I just I had to stop from laughing but I thought should I be tasting that and then I'm like this is just beyond my realm so I guess my question for you here is I guess like this this talking about wine because Amy Poehler when she was interviewed by for, for by Jimmy Fallon about the movie she said if you describe wine confidently it doesn't matter if you don't know anything you just sound confident so I guess my question for you three is like what do we talk about when we talk about wine where we don't sound like a pretentious ass but we don't feel like oh I shouldn't say anything because I don't you know, does it matter? Should we even say anything about why we were? Andrew. Uh, so I, I'm going to go back to the art analogy uh, with what Amy said. Like, is anyone going to critique your opinions about art to your face? Probably not because they don't really have a leg to stand on if they're trying to tell you how to think about things that you appreciate. Like, that is not their job. So she's right. And you can actually get away with bullshitting, like, most people, like, 95% of the time on wine. Like, you can make up... You can make up anything you want, and most people will never call you on it. But the 5% of the time that you are tasting with someone that does take it seriously, out of their own sense of like needing things, like wanting to talk to you about what they think, like they might check you. Like if you make something up about a wine, like someone who knows that wine is going to maybe say to you, well, maybe not, maybe more like this, you know? But, but you can, literally, you can bluff. 95% of people, 95% of the time, by just making things up, talking about wine, and no one is going to, yeah, she's, she's right about that, um, I would say, but, I mean, it's, yeah. So you wouldn't shut someone down, they say, can't just, you probably say, well, I, I, I taste this, and you try to steer them that way? I would say that is not something I get on this wine. And I would say I get more this. Stone fruit is a real descriptor for a lot of wines. Like you get peaches, apricots, riper, less ripe, pickled, like overripe. There's, I mean, you can, there's a lot of ways to talk about that, but it takes a long time to get there. But, but I just like to reference uh, someone. Um, I'm, I'm sure this is someone else who came, who maybe did this first, uh, but Raj Parr, something I read that he said, something he would do is he would take a wine glass to the farmer's market and he would just pick things up off the farmer's market, put them in the wine glass, and then train himself how to smell that thing out of a wine glass. Because if you're used to smelling like artichokes or asparagus or strawberries, like just out in the normal world, that's different than smelling it in a wine glass. But he will literally go to a farmer's market and take herbs, throw them in a wine glass, and practice what it's like to smell rosemary in a wine glass. Because there are some wines where you will smell rosemary or strawberry, or bubble gum, or, all, or tennis ball, right? All of this random stuff that people come up with, 
you can train yourself to pick those up. You just have to go and put them in a wine glass and learn and, and just get used to actually smelling them out of a wine glass. It's actually something you can train yourself to do. Um, and then you have a lot more confidence when you actually call it um, because you're used to doing it already. You've kind of set yourself up for success, if that makes sense. Winemakers, do you have any comment on talking about wine, Chris? Uh, after 10 years in wine bars, um, for me, less is more. Um, <laughs> if, if you know about wine, like it, it's wine is this amazing thing. You can definitely go down a rabbit hole. Um, but usually for me, the, the more someone's talking about it, eh, <laughs> either they know a lot and they're an ass or they don't. And they're an ass. Um, I, I just, I, you, you can say so much about it, but it's to me is 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 learning it. So you just know what you like, because that's the most important thing. And the most important thing about knowing what you like is being able to then tell someone, I like this type of wine. What do you have that's, you know, what can I try that's similar, maybe a little different? That'll, I want to try something different tonight. So show me something new but this is what I like. And that's the most important thing about learning about wine is just, and not, I'm not talking about describing acidity or tannins or things like that, but just like, I normally like X. And so can you give me something different that's like that? Craig. Uh, well, I would say that hopefully we're always learning and open to learning and that at any given point in my day, uh, you know, I can feel confident about something that I'm smelling and tasting, and I can also feel like I just know nothing at all. And um, I, yeah, I would, I would just say that um, just taste and be aware and talk about it, and as much as you want or as little as you want. And um, hopefully that will, you know, add to your enjoyment uh, of the wine. All right. Last question before we wind it up for the podcast and go to the most important part, the wine tasting. Uh, a question for each for each of you, a quick one, I guess. Um, what's a, a, a pet peeve? Well, we've already talked, I guess, a few about pet peeves. But pet peeves about wine tasting, marketing, making it that just, you know, maybe a pet peeve, but also something... The, the second part is like something that you want people to remember about California wine. Maybe that's something that's underrated, isn't talked about, under the radar that we don't know about. So maybe some pet peeve about something that's just overblown too much and something that you want us to remember because it, it doesn't often get discussed as much as it should. Um, I'm going to start with Andrew and work our way down to Craig. Uh, I'm going to say two things. We mentioned sideways earlier. Sideways, uh, Merlot sales in California after sideways literally went down something around 40% uh, over the entire market. Um, so one, Merlot can be one of the most delicious wines in the world, and I would just write Bank Bordeaux. I'm just going to say I think that's real. The other thing is a lot of people say they don't like Chardonnay. Um, and I would I would just encourage them to be more specific. Um in that they probably, maybe when they're saying that, do not like mass-produced, overly oaked, like residual sugar, like heavy, 
California Chardonnay, which which is which makes sense to me. Like I believe that 100% as well. Um, but there's a lot of Chardonnay being made um, in the world that is absolutely delicious, and I pour Chablis like all the time to people, and it is 100% Chardonnay. There's also some great producers in California that make ridiculously good Chardonnay. Um, I'm gonna throw out Shannon uh, down in Southern California, like Arnott Roberts. Um, Anyway, it doesn't matter. But some Chardonnay is delicious, and I would just, I would just, I would just encourage people to be more specific um, before they make blanket statements about not liking something like that. And that's. I will remember that because I'm one of the people like I hate Chardonnay, but I will try to be more specific about why. Chris, what about you? Uh, pet peeve and maybe something that's underrated that should be more known about in California. I'm going to wrap them into one because California is a huge state. Um, and I think it gets a lot of notoriety for certain things, which, you know, it, you know, uh, Napa changing how people thought of California is a wonderful thing, but there's a lot more to California than Napa. Um, and there's even a lot more to California than Lodi, um, and big brands. There's, there's just so many different styles of wine that can be made in this state because it is huge. Um, and something from San Diego isn't going to be anything like Mendocino. Napa to the foothills um, is just is a huge, huge, wonderful area, and so I just encourage people to like go out and try new things, see new, see new areas, because um, you can make a lot of wonderful things in this state. And I hear Amador County is lovely at this time of the year to come visit Amador City in particular. All right, Craig, last word. What was it? Peeves and what else? <laughs> Something that's underrated that should get a little more <coughs> uh, known underrated i'm not going to talk about peeves because i don't really think i have any peeves at least not ones that i would want to talk about right now um i would just say that what is grossly underrated is having wine with your meals all over the world people have wine with breakfast with lunch with dinner this country was founded by Puritans, and they're still here. <laughs> so those people probably would consider me an alcoholic, but I, and of course, Puritanism really is the incredible fear that somewhere somebody is actually enjoying themselves. <laughs> and that's tied to the pocketbook, which means that these people who are enjoying themselves, as long as they pay us duty, then I guess maybe it's okay if they enjoy themselves. This is all just ridiculous. Um, I, I just, my, I guess it is a peeve. Uh, <laughs> drink wine with your meals, people. Just, you know, forget what I said about talking about it. Just drink wine with your meals and enjoy it. Because <laughs> it's life-changing. What's a good wine? What happened with an omelet? I guess omelet with some basil, herbs, little it cheese. Just, just depends. Just all you have to remember is the bubbles go with everything. Bubble. Ah, uh, okay. All right. All right. So on that note, we're going to wrap up the podcast and we're going to go to the wine tasting. But thank you very much, gentlemen, for the great discussion on wine. Thank you. And thank you for hosting us, Craig. You're welcome. Thank and you. thank you, audience, for being here. Appreciate it. All right.
You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Grapes and Groundbreakers conversation was held on May 13th at Harmeyer Wine Cellars in West Sacramento. Thanks to the panelists, Andrew Wilson, Chris Walsh, and Craig Harmeyer. Special thanks to Andrew for helping us put this event together. And to Craig, his wife Kelly, and son Alex Harmeyer for hosting this event at their winery. We couldn't do these events without the help of our volunteers, so special thanks to Nate Graham for helping with the audio recording, and Eric Schwartzgruber for manning the bar. Also to Caleb Clark of Kickstart Audio for recording and producing this podcast, and to Judith Basia for photography. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.